For this podcast, I'm going to take you to a moment, a, a slice of church history. And um, I, I think that it's the most revolutionary, incredible moment of church history that's happened in the last 50 years. It's incredible. It's exciting. Buckle your seatbelts because here we go. Okay, the Second Vatican Council was tsunamic for Christianity, especially for the future of Christianity. From 1962 to 1965, bishops from across the world gathered in Rome to discuss the widespread changes in the air. It's almost as if the, the Pope had recognized Oh no, the 60s are here. Something has changed. The church is not the same church that I grew up in. And if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to shift any type of cultural moment, this is the moment. They discussed several topics, but social injustice, especially as it existed in Latin America, was a prominent topic on the table. There was an honest conversation about the abuses of capitalism and how greed had led to widespread poverty and death, especially in the Southern Hemisphere. Priests had gathered, bishops had gathered from all across the world, and especially those from the Southern Hemisphere were reporting what they were seeing, the abuses, the, the, the shock of poverty, the shock of going without hunger and clean water was tragic. And so, the consul affirmed the right to form labor unions, the right to strike, and the obligation of people to come to the aid of the poor. This is revolutionary in this moment. The, what the turn that the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council is making, is that the church sometimes has to go against the status quo. The church cannot continue to say yes to the systems that are in place. Radical. It's a very ancient view of Christianity that's beginning to be reaffirmed through this council. The Second Vatican Council opened the floodgates to a gathering of all the bishops of Latin America in Midian, Colombia in 1968. Although Midian is, the, is a city known for its coffee, for its orchids, and for its cocaine, it has now become associated with the city that initiated a revolution a Christian revolution on behalf of the poor. Important conversations were had at this council as well. Conversations on peace and justice and poverty and education. Not only did they discuss how important these issues are for the people of uh, Latin America, but they wrote documents for publication and for action. These documents began what they didn't quite fully, weren't fully aware of then as a new way of thinking, a new way of talking about God. Robert McAfee Brown, a phenomenal scholar, summarizes the importance of this gathering. Midian has become known as the conference in which the church chose to stand with the oppressed, attack the political and economic structures of Latin America as purveyors of injustice, pointed out the unjust dependency of Latin America on outside powers and called for radical change across the continent. Midian named what they were seeing not only in Latin America, but also in the Southern Hemisphere. The rich were growing richer at the expense of the poor. Here's where the breakthrough was for these faithful priests and bishops. The, bishop, the bishops refused to stand by and bless the system that created inequality. They decided 
to fight the system and to follow the Bible's clear call to care for the widow, orphan, the poor, and the distressed. See the entire Bible, but especially the gospel of Matthew chapter 25. So this conference led to yet another conference. These were bold and revolutionary priests. They were a part of a social movement that was doing things on behalf of the poor and the marginalized. In 1979, 10 years after the famous Midian conference, they held another conference. And this is how this conference, the, the, the new social activism was characterized in Latin America. From the depths of the countries that make up Latin America, a cry is rising to heaven, growing louder and more alarming all the time. It is the cry of a suffering people who demand justice, freedom, and respect for the basic rights of human beings and peoples. A little more than 10 years ago, the Midian Conference noted this fact when it pointed out, quote, A muted cry wells up from millions of human beings pleading with their pastors for a liberation that is nowhere to be found in their case. The cry might have seemed mute back then. Today, it is loud and clear. I love that quote. I love the way that you can sort of see the groundswell emerging for what is going to be known as liberation theology. And liberation theology starts in its context. It starts with the poor in Latin America, and it becomes a, a groundswell, a movement outward. As these theologians and pastors have reflected on this movement, they, come up, they came up with a definition of liberation theology that's important for us to consider. Are, are you loving this? We're going all the way to this slice of history, to a definition of liberation theology, finally at the very end to a poem. For liberation theologians, theology is critical reflection on praxis in light of the word of God. So we're going to break this down and kind of slow down a little bit. Theology is critical reflection on praxis in light of the word of God. So in the first 1200 years of Christianity, the task of theology was wisdom the sort of proper ordering. Some things are more important than others. The sort of raising of the heart to what matters most. We could think of like biblical commentaries written and and um, contemplation and spirituality works on spirituality written. Then in the Middle Ages, from the 1200s on, the task becomes rational knowledge. And you could see Aristotle is used and theology becomes known as a science. Thomas Aquinas represents the best of the Middle Ages theology and combines both the early task of the early church and the Middle Ages when he says this, theology is not only a science, but also wisdom flowing from charity, which unites a person to God. But then the turn that begins to happen in Midian, Columbia with the liberation theologians is theology begins to think about the transformation of the world and human action within history. So let me say that again. What shift begins to happen is it's a shift away from sort of this vertical thinking of God, but then to this horizontal thinking of humanity. And so we begin to think about the transformation of the world. And of course, Karl Marx is important here. And and we begin to think about human action in history. And these theologians begin reflecting on What progress are we making to building the kingdom of God on earth? So it's this incredibly faithful 
passionate exploration of local context and local neighborhoods and how this sort of flourishing of the kingdom of God is happening on the ground level. The intention of liberation theology is not to deny the importance of orthodox theology, that's right belief, but to balance and reject the exclusivism that doctrine is held within the Christian tradition. Liberation theology focuses on orthopraxy, that is right practice. So liberation theology is concerned with what you do, not exactly with what you think, but it doesn't throw out what you think. We are holistic human beings that both matter, but liberation theology seeks to excavate, seeks to think deeply about what we are doing and how it is transforming the social structures and local context that we are in. Theology is contemplative action then. Theology is, once again, critical reflection on praxis in light of the word of God. And so if we break that definition down quite simply, critical reflection names that theology is primarily reflective. Theology does not produce pastoral activity. It reflects upon it. Theology is always a second act, as Gustavo Gutierrez reminds us again and again. And then this word we're not quite used to. This word praxis, different from the word practice, like we practice our jump shot or we practice our flute or our cello, but praxis is a unique word. Paulo Fiera, the famous activist, scholar, educator, says that praxis is reflection and action upon the world in order to transform it. So praxis names the interrelated tension between reflection and action. Human beings are always in a back and forth movement between thought and action. Humans are are in a state of ongoing involvement and participation in the unfolding events of the world. So when we name praxis, we name our complicity in human history. Rebecca Chop helpfully summarizes this idea in three simple ideas. Humans are formed through a political historical reality, meaning we're always a part of the world. We never are separated. Human reality is intersubjective. No one is an ahistorical I. All subjectivity arises out of intersubjective relationships, meaning we're all interconnected and tied with one another. And thirdly, humans must and can intentionally create history, transforming and shaping reality for the improvement of human flourishing. What I love about liberation theology It calls us to be history makers, to be true biblical peacemakers in this world. It calls us to the radical reality of our social locations and the power that each one of our social locations has. We all bear the burden of power in liberation theology, and we all have the right to use that power, to wield that power on behalf of the least, the last, and the lost. Ooh, can you tell I'm excited about this topic? This is an important topic. Praxis. Uh, is best understood by Martin Luther King Jr.'s beautiful point that he makes in the Birmingham jail with poetic flourishes when he says, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects all indirectly. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Now back to Gustavo Gutierrez. He is a priest and a theologian. He's still alive, 89 years old and still rocking the liberation world and calling people to remember uh, the poorest of the poor in 
Southern Hemisphere and all places across the world, but he has given his life to be a radical voice for the poor and a radical reforming voice for Christianity. Gustavo, who's played a central role in the unfolding story that I told above, he was at every conference, penned several important documents, was behind a catalyst for conversations, and even wrote several dynamite books on liberation theology. He writes things that are incredibly challenging, things that you want to settle with and think about for the rest of your life. He writes things like this, God is revealed in human history, and it is likewise in history that persons encounter the word made flesh. Christ is not a private individual. The bond which links him to all persons gives him a unique historical role. God's temple is human history. The sacred transcends the narrow limits of the places of worship. Amazing, incredible. And he's beginning to hint at this incredible sort of sacrament of the neighbor, this theology of a neighbor, of how in the face of the other, we um, are called to act for God. We are called to see the ache in human faces. And then he writes this, our encounter with the Lord occurs in our encounter with others, especially in the encounter with those whose human features have been disfigured by oppression, despoilation, and alienation, and who have, quote, not be- no beauty, no majesty, but are the, quote, things from which men turn away their eyes. These are the marginal groups who have fashioned a true culture for themselves and whose values must, we must understand if we wish to reach them. And then he ends with this incredible call. Our attitude towards them, or rather our commitment to them, will indicate whether or not we are directing our existence in conformity with the will of the Father. (laughs) Incredible quotes to to think of for, for a lifetime of your Christian faith. Gustavo Gutierrez calls us to a theology of neighbor. As I began to grasp the powerful truths of liberation theology, and I have much, much to learn. Reading Gustavo's words, I had this moment where tears began to run down my cheeks. Then I found a poem that was written by Leon Felipe that Gustavo references in the footnotes of his most famous book, A Theology of Liberation. This poem has survived with a fascinating history because Che Guevara, the physician and Marxist revolutionary, wrote it down in his journal, and he would often write it several times. And then when the CIA arrested him, they seized his journal. And we have this poem because it was preserved by Che Guevara. And when I read this poem, it was like this poem, this simple poem summarizes the thoughts of liberation theology. And this poem, this poem should definitely be on a spoken word album. And who has not done this before them? So I found the poem. I found a Spanish translation of the poem. I not only worked hard to translate it, but I invited this poem, which is called Christ, I Love You. I invited my friend Anna Wyanet, who's a good friend of my college roommate, Andrew Wyanet, to perform this with me. So in the track you're about to hear, she performs the Spanish and then I perform the English. So I give you Leon Felipe's poem, Christ, I Love You. Cristo, te amo, no porque bajaste de una estrella, 
sino porque me descubriste que el hombre tiene sangre, lágrimas, congojas, llaves, herramientas para abrir las puertas cerradas de la luz. Si tú nos enseñaste que el hombre es Dios, un pobre Dios crucificado como tú, y aquel que está a tu izquierda en Gólgota, el mal ladrón, también es un Dios. Christ, I love you, not because you descended from a star, but because you revealed to me that man has blood, tears, anguish, keys, tools, to open the doors closed to light. Yes, you taught us that man is God, a poor God crucified like you, and the one who is at your left on Golgotha, the bad thief, is God too.